there's some heavy machinery uh, passing by uh, uh, down the road. Tanks out the window being dragged uh, by I Ukrainian was just going trucks, to say these are not here. tanks with the name of our new Patreon uh, on the side of of it, <laughs> um, but there there is some some noise um, coming out. So if you, uh, uh, I apologize for that. It's Friday, March 11th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, infected with corona, master student in civil engineering and Hank Kool, resurrection watcher. With me today is Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News and Irish truck driver. In the second half of the episode, we'll uh, have an in-depth piece on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the effects it has on the Netherlands and on the Dutch economy. And we'll also have a very special guest on the show. We'll be interviewing Andrei Degler, a Ukrainian national living in Groningen. He is currently uh, in uh, the Ukraine and we'll talk with him about how it is to be in a country that uh, has just been invaded. So stay tuned uh, for that. Yeah, very interesting indeed to get his insight. Uh, Paul, you have finally, after almost exactly two years after the start of the yeah. plague, you have succumbed to Corona. You're the first person, I think, of the, on, the, on the extended podcast team to have uh, been struck down. Yeah, I, I got infected on, on, on Monday. I woke up with a uh, sore throat. Um, I expected, I wanted to have a test. I didn't have a self-test anymore, so I wanted to get tested at the GGD. Mm. Um, Recent experience showed that you had to wait for at least uh, two days or something in order to get an appointment, but I could, uh, 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 I I was able to come um, that very uh, very afternoon. So I got tested very quickly and my result came in also very quickly and it turned out to be positive. So Mm. yeah, um, I I have Corona. Um, on, On the first day, it was only, I only had mild symptoms, but the second day, so Tuesday, it got much worse and it hasn't uh, improved since then. So, yeah, I've been under the weather for at least a couple of days now. So, no, it hasn't been fun at all. Yeah, so this is the very mild um, Omicron variant that you hardly notice uh, uh Apparently, yeah. yeah. I, I, I heard from, uh, from others that... Um, uh, they also didn't experience, uh, had, didn't have a mild experience, but mm. uh, yeah, others do too. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's you know um, a, a throw with the dice, and uh, yeah, some people um, have it uh, almost uh, without uh, without noticing anything. But yeah, if, uh, I wasn't uh, that lucky. You're this not lucky, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. No. Well, well, I hope you're feeling better very soon. And obviously, you're now in, uh, I guess, isolation for the next. Uh, uh, how long is isolation these days? I've completely lost track of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's technically five days. Right. Um, so uh, after your first symptoms. So technically, I can leave uh, today uh, mm. or tomorrow in my house. But you know, you have to have. Uh, at least one day without uh, symptoms, and right. yeah, I I don't have that you yet. Haven't qualified so yeah, for I that still yet. no. Yeah. So so I'm still in 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 quarantine. I have to admit that I broke quarantine rules at one point. <laughs> Yesterday I went out for a walk, hmm. <laughs> and as soon as I stepped out of my building, my phone rang, and it was the Gerrida <laughs> asking me if all the rules uh, regarding uh, self quarantine w- were clear. So yeah, it yeah. was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As okay. if they knew. Uh, I, I think they have some of the um, some of these uh, uh, Chinese spy uh, uh, cameras still in my building. So yeah, yeah, I think yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting they're watching yeah. it. But uh, yeah, yeah. D- d- just tell me it wasn't a walk; it was a special recovery operation. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I can't say that. Uh, you you have to go to bellingcats.com to uh, find out my real intentions. Exactly. Yeah. So no. we'll, we'll, we'll geolocate you and and then share the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was very frustrating because <laughs> finally we have some nice weather and I'm just sticking yeah. indoors. And yeah, I just thought I have I had a very bad headache, so I thought well maybe some fresh air will 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 clear things up, and it worked uh, uh, for a very short time, but yeah, it immediately yeah. came back. So yeah, it's um, but at least I spent uh, uh, thirty minutes in the sun without uh, bumping into anyone. Exactly, I, I kept my taking distance. care to keep care to keep your distance from people. I guess when you're outdoors, unless you actually sort of stand and talk to somebody, you're probably going to be okay, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't do that. No, good. Well, uh, th- 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 at least that's at least you mitigated your crime there. Which is uh, exactly yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I did, on a serious, on, on one more serious point, do, do, do you think you caught it on the, on the carnival of the weekend? Because there has been a lot of no. cases related to carnival. Yeah, we're going to hear about that more later in the podcast. No, yeah. I don't think I did because um, I got my first symptoms uh, almost one and a half weeks after I was uh, at carnival, mm. uh, and I or I only stayed outdoors. Uh, I made cl- made sure that I didn't go anywhere uh, into a very crowded cafe. Uh, so I I also take my my uh, uh, some precautions uh, and I only was there for three hours um, but yeah it's um, uh, nine days after I was there no that's probably not where no. I catched it but I, I, I suspect that I might um, uh, have a secondhand carnival uh, infection because I did spend my weekend in uh, Brabant mm. okay um, my job title is about Hank Hall. I don't want to talk about him. Yes, yeah, so well, that's the other, of course, in the, in the course of... Do you? Say, well, no. No, but as well as um, uh, going out for illegal walks, Paul, you've also I don't, not really been helping your recovery or your general morale <laughs> by watching uh, Onkahord Nederland. So I, I didn't watch it. I just saw the announcement that they were going to have Hank Hall on as a guest and that was that was that was more than enough to, to make me feel even worse than I already did. Yeah. Um I didn't watch it. I might do it uh Thank goodness. at some point during my quarantine <laughs> Please if don't. I really want to. Yeah, maybe maybe because yeah. I don't know. I I'm haven't not, heard I'm not sure, about I'm it. I'm not sure so. losing the will to live and Corona is a, is a good combination <laughs> of, 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 right. of illnesses. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I have some sort of weird uh, fascination uh, with this. I want to see how bad he was doing uh, on that show. So, yeah. <laughs> but I haven't heard anyone talk about it, so it's probably not cool. worth watching it at all. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and you, Gordon, you uh, you insisted on this job title. <laughs> a, uh, a a what is it? A, a Irish truck driver. Please tell us what that is all about. Yeah, I want to join the Irish tr- Truckers Union after we've had so much news about uh, truckers joining the ranks of wappies uh, <laughs> in the last couple of weeks. This was a different truck driver story, where um, a, a, an Irish truck driver in Dublin basically reversed his lorry very um, very violently through the gates of the Russian embassy hmm. um, in <laughs> in Dublin, and of course the Russian embassy put okay. up this uh, they the, the, the were absolutely horrified and aghast and they put this uh, um, uh, they put up this angry response saying how dare you violate our territory which I thought was nicely <laughs> ironic given yeah. what, <laughs> what Russia doing in the morning I mean in serious, on a serious note and the Irish Prime Minister the Taoiseach Leo Varadka um, he, he condemned it obviously and because you know it, it is potentially this sensitive time uh, not, not a wise thing to do to destroy um, the, the embassy property embassies are protected for very good reasons but yeah. um, you know on the other, but, but what was great about it was that uh, 
uh, this was a truck uh, carrying what they called ecclesiastical supplies, so stuff for stuff for churches and masses, and for the to which if 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 you know the comedy series Father Ted, I suspect it was a big consignment of black socks for the for all the priests of in Ireland or something like that. But it was just wonderful. This was kind of a, you know like a, a lorry carrying supplies for a church mission that was then sort of deciding to carry out this kind of sort of um, yeah, minor act of. Uh, uh, of uh, minor act of yeah. war against uh, Russian territory in Ireland. Yeah, 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 it is. It is, of course, uh, a violation of Russian territory. Yeah. Uh, uh, technically, yeah. yeah. Uh, we condemn his actions, but we are also. But we also uh, think they're silently sympathetic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of silently rooting for him. Um, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also it was good uh, in the context of what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks that uh, you know some Russians at least got to see what a working truck looks like. Because, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, because on the yeah because their trucks on the battlefield seem to be in an appalling condition. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm also worrying about um, you know you see all these Ukrainian tractors pulling Russian yeah. tanks uh, through the countryside, and um, you know we had some uh, uh, demonstrations in the Hague with farmers. So I'm worrying that they uh, they have uh, new equipment uh, ready to uh, uh, to storm the Hague and to uh, yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I think it would have. The perfect resolution to this would have been if uh, if, if an Irish farmer had come along with his tractor and actually dragged this uh, 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 dragged this truck away from the from the embassy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's a bit of light relief in uh, amid the sort of fairly horrific, uh, yeah, stories of war that we've been having uh, in the course of the last couple of weeks. Speaking of grievous violations of protocol, what was happening <laughs> this week at uh, Question Time in the Dutch Parliament? This is uh, our yeah, for the week. It is our op yeah. of the week. Uh, every Tuesday at uh, 2 p.m., as you said, the Tweede Kamer holds the Vragenuurtje or Question Hour, or you said you called it Question Time. Yeah. It's 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 um, it's quite similar to um, Prime Minister questions in uh, in the UK, uh, except that uh, you, uh, MPs can can ask questions on basically any minister, yeah. uh, not necessarily the Prime Minister. Um, yeah, this is uh, it. It lasts an hour. Th- that's why it's called Vragenuurtje, mm-hmm. and MPs can ask uh, questions on pressing issues or current affairs to ministers. And this week it was uh, Liliane Marijnissen's turn, uh, the leader of the SP party. She wanted to ask the final minister how she was planning to deal with decreasing spending power in light of all the uh, geopolitical developments uh, but Sigrid Kaag was unavailable and instead she sent a deputy minister to the Tweede Kamer according to Kaag's official schedule she was in Limburg to give a speech on the EU at Maastricht University uh, Marijnissen pointed out this was strange because ministers are expected to keep question hour free in their agenda in case they get summoned. Um, uh, how this works uh, MPs they submit questions to the chair and the chair um, makes a list on the questions that will be asked on Tuesday morning and the relevant ministers are then summoned to parliament so they have to you know pencil in question hour because they can be summoned Hmm. at any time on Tuesday morning there are exceptions, um, for example, in case of emergencies or urgent international business, uh, then a minister can uh, uh, send a deputy or whatever. Um, but a speech on something that you're not even a minister of clearly does not fall under this. Uh, Marijnis uh, uh, got support from many other opposition parties. They said Kaag's decision to go to Maastricht instead of coming to parliament was offensive and they demanded that she would come back to The Hague immediately. Uh, the session was then suspended for almost 
almost half an hour by chair Vera Bergkamp to figure out what to do. But in the meantime, late night talk show Op1 announced that Kaag would be a guest on the show that evening to talk about declining spending power hmm. and the exact same things she was supposed to answer questions about. Okay. This and the fact that Kaag was also scheduled to visit a river cleaning project obviously didn't make things better. Uh, the whole thing was uh, in the end resolved when Prime Minister Rutte would come to the Tweede Kamer to answer the questions after his phone calls with European leaders ended. So hmm. uh, I, I think this is, I, I tried to, to look this up, but I think this is the first time Vragenuurtje was split in two hmm. and wasn't held between 2 and 3 p.m. Um, I th- so I think this is a um, uh, uh, um, a, a new uh, precedent in parliamentary history. Yeah, and it's just a straight-up breach of protocol by Kaag here, right, who you know, she hasn't got the excuse that she's new to the job. I mean, she's new to this job, but she's been a minister for yeah, in the f- through from nearly the whole of the last cabinet term. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and it, it is it's basically... Yeah. It is... It is um, I mean, in in the grand scheme of things, this isn't the most important thing. But if you're talking about a new administrative culture, a new relationship between cabinet and parliament, where we say parliament is the boss and not cabinet, mm. then, you know, in light of this, this is also not a correct decision um, um, and, and also it's just the rules right if you get summoned to parliament you have to come and yeah. um, uh, if you don't have a uh, good reason to uh, not attend then yeah you just have to come so yeah it was um, it was not a good side uh, on, on Kaag but it yeah. was also a, a very I mean in, in, in next week we probably all have forgotten about it and it was a very nice ophef in the yeah. way ophef is supposed to be because we had all these new developments right this <laughs> opain appearance and yeah uh, then all of a sudden she had to go to this uh, river cleaning project. So it was it was it was a very nice from a popcorn point of view. It was a very <laughs> nice opf. So, but such in the grand so, scheme yeah. of things, yeah. it doesn't really. Yeah, such is the nature of opf. Yeah, and then, uh, exactly. but also in the context of the new administrative culture, we've had so much talk in the last year or so, especially in regards to Corona, that uh, politicians have constantly complained that things are announced in the media before yeah. they're they're told to Parliament, and then suddenly, lo and behold, Kach, um isn't in Parliament to answer questions about spending power. Was ha- quite happy to do so on a talk show. So yeah, the new administrative was, culture who, is not quite working out the way. Uh, yeah, and yeah. who was the loudest voice uh, regarding this new administrative culture? Uh, could that have been perhaps uh, somebody who spends a lot of time on talk shows? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, not as I said, not a good side. Yeah. Who was that? That was Kaag. That was Kaag. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This week we give you a crash course on voting in the Netherlands and tell you the importance of the right pencil color. Corona infections rates keep hitting record numbers after the southern provinces insisted on their stupid traditions. A new surprising twist in the Volt saga and we have an interview with Andrei Degeler, a Ukrainian national from Kharkiv living in Groningen. With all the news coming out of Ukraine, you almost forget about it, but next week we have an election. On March 14th, 15th and 16th, voting will take place in 333 municipalities. It surprises me that no WAPI has pointed out that this is uh, exactly half of the number of the beast. That, 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 um, that's too complicated mass for the WAPIs. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you have a point there. Yeah. Um, we will uh, elect new local councils and uh, chances are that you are allowed to vote as well. We thought let's give you a one-on-one on how to vote in the Netherlands. Yes, indeed. So, uh, yeah, the first question is uh, the one you just asked. Who? Or, or, no. So the first question is the one you just alluded to. Who can actually vote in local elections? Yeah, we have 13 million people uh, in the Netherlands that are eligible to vote in elections. Uh, that includes, uh, yeah, 
every Dutch person from the age of 18, but also all EU nationals and other foreigners who have lived in the Netherlands for at least five years, uh, with January 31st as the cutoff date. Uh, what I was wondering, and maybe you know this, yeah. um, does this also include British nationals? Uh, they are no longer uh, EU nationals, of course, but uh, can, can they vote as well if they haven't been living in the Netherlands for less than five years? I don't know the answer to that straight off the top of my head, but I think that depends on whether you've uh, secured your uh, right of residency in the Netherlands. Because mm, uh, okay. they had a special arrangement for um, for UK nationals uh, who've been uh, in the UK for uh, for five years uh, or more, and another one for people who've been here for less than five years. And I think the effect of that was basically to allow you to keep all your rights as an EU national within the Netherlands, mm. not in other EU countries, because the Dutch have no saying in that. But uh, yeah. so I, I think probably as long as you've got your verblijfsvergunning sorted out, you will be able to vote. There is one simple simple way to tell if you can vote or not, and that is if you have checked your mail and if you have find your, found your voting pass or your yeah. stamp pass in it. Um, if you are, you don't have to register. You are registered uh, automatically, mm. and everyone who is entitled to vote uh, receives his uh, or her stamp pass by mail yeah. uh, two weeks in advance. If you haven't received one or lost it, or you think you are eligible, you have until today. So that is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the day this podcast comes out to request a new one at your municipality and I think 5 o'clock is the deadline so um, and yes. the, the, the chances pr- are probably that, missed uh, it unfortunately you probably missed it <laughs> yeah, this is about, yeah we're, we're kind of like the, um, uh, the the train station announcer t- uh, saying which train <laughs> has just left the platform but uh, uh, but yeah but, but also it is worth saying if you think you've had an envelope in the last couple of weeks because when I was speaking to politicians they said a lot of um, uh, people who don't speak Dutch see this envelope and just chuck it away because they don't know what it is so if you think you've uh, had yeah. an envelope in the last couple of weeks with the word stem pass on it and you haven't opened it and or, or it's still in your maybe in your you know in, in, in your paper recycling ready to go out just have a ruffle through to see if you can retrieve it because that's your voting card and that allows you to, to and you need to take it with you to go and vote yeah yeah which is important you need to take your yeah, you need to take that and you need to take some id and i believe you can you're allowed to use id that has expired in the less the, the, as long as it wasn't more than five years ago so, exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't have to write this script, Gordon. I just have to let you talk, <laughs> and uh, everything will be covered. Okay. So who will? Ele- <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> So who are we electing? Yeah, in this election, you are voting for the members of your local council. You can also call it the municipality council or city council. And they are responsible for yeah, a couple of things. Uh, for example, ensuring sufficient housing, building local roads and cycle tracks, collecting and processing waste, providing schools and library, issuing documents, dealing with welfare claims, ensuring proper long-term residential and home care. You name it. Uh, mm-hmm. Municipalities uh, uh, have a lot of things they uh, they uh, they deal with. How many seats your local council has depends on the size of your municipality with a minimum of eight and a maximum of 45. For example, the Amsterdam City Council has 45 seats, Delft has 35, and if you live in a smaller municipality, that can be even lower than that. Uh, in total, there are almost 55,000 candidates. That is almost half a percent, uh, percent uh, of, 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 of everyone in the Netherlands uh, is a candidate right now. Yeah. It's uh, actually quite insane. It's quite mad, um, yeah. It's almost as yeah. many people as tested positive for coronavirus yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, most national parties that we know from the Tweede Kamer have local branches in almost every municipality. Uh, but what's yeah always very striking to see is that there are also countless local parties uh, that are only active in one specific municipality. Uh, for example, 
U heeft groep de Mos, Hart Den Haag in The Hague, for example, um, in Delft. I have my bedsheet sized uh, candidate say, list you, here. You just produced your uh, your um, uh, your ballot paper there, and it almost uh, yeah, it almost knocked you off your chair. It was so huge. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Onafhankelijk <laughs> um, uh, Delft is one that you have in Delft. Uh, Studententechniek in politiek. Uh, stip uh, it's called yeah you have usually you see well almost half of the parties that that participate in your local election are probably a uh, local party and um, uh, 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 collectively these usually win the elections right last time for example almost 30% of the votes went to a local uh, party mm. Yeah, and of course, and they are expected to win even more of the vote uh, this time. It's a, it's been a long-running trend that they've gradually eclipsed the national parties in in municipalities. Um, and uh, yeah, they exactly, yeah, yeah. now have names like sort of Gemeente Belangen of Hart van wherever it is, or Echt or something like that. They're <laughs> often sort of very much prioritise the fact that they are you know a local party for local people fighting on local issues. Yes. Yeah. And don't and don't get fooled. Uh, there are uh, you know everywhere in the in the in, in your municipality you see signs uh, with uh, stem locale mm. uh, that this that isn't an uh, <laughs> an endorsement <laughs> on voting locally, yes. but it just means that this is uh, the way to go to yeah. your local uh, polling station. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 you can vote at any polling station in your municipality, right? That's a thing to say as well. That's again later on. Okay, in my right. Well, well I'll, I'll, I'll stop uh, anticipating your script poll and just uh, get, get back to the question in front of me. Which is uh, so. so what, what, uh, given that there are so many parties, and you know every municipality has got a completely different lineup, uh, what's the best way to decide how who to vote for? Yeah, that's that's the, that's really the hard part. It's already not easy if you're Dutch and if you speak the language, but if you you know sp- only speak English or a not different language, then it's especially hard. Um, it's unfortunately not too common for parties to publish their plans in English. Um, sometimes you see that uh, l- parties in the larger cities do this, but in the smaller ones and especially local parties, yeah, they they just don't have the time or the money or the uh, uh, manpower to to translate their plans into English. Um, there are some some English language debates organized in the larger cities and also in university towns. Um, often this is done by the university itself and you can usually rewatch these debates online on YouTube or on the university's website. Um, there's also a very popular tool called the Kiesweiser. That's an online questionnaire that helps you determine which party you agree with most by answering 30 questions. Many municipalities offer them, but again, not always in English or I think almost never in English. Mm. I, I, I looked up the, the Amsterdam Kieswijzer, which I expected to be in English, but it wasn't. Um, fortunately, with the help of Google Translate, uh, you might be able to translate it quite easily into English, so you know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, also on DutchNews.nl, you'll find a list of uh, yeah, basically all national parties with a short description um, that might be helpful as well. Yeah, of what they stand for, yeah. And the Kieswijzer as well, uh, once you've asked your 30 questions, well, it gives you 30 statements to say whether you agree or disagree with them usually um, and then it could, it'll give you a sort of like a percentage score of how much your views are aligned with each of the parties yeah and yeah. you can also uh, you can also let the Kiesweiser know uh, which statements uh, you uh, find the most important so it gets yeah. a higher um, value in the uh, in the calculation so uh, yeah it, it, it might be very very useful and what's the um, uh, actual 
mechanical process of voting? Uh, what, do people, what do you have to do? Yeah, usually you can only vote on one day, but like last time, you can vote on three days now be, uh, because of the uh, pandemic we're still in. Mm. Uh, you can vote on March 14th, 15th and 16th. And you can vote, as Gordon already said, in every polling station <laughs> within your municipality. Your Tempos names the one closest to your home, but you don't have to go there. Uh, that's just the one that's uh, nearest to you. Yeah. You also have received a list with uh, all the polling stations in your municipality, uh, which is probably a very long list because there are many, many, many places you can vote. Uh, typically, you can find them in schools, churches, nursing homes, whatever, but they are also often very conveniently located in train stations. Mm-hmm. So you can vote on your way to work or uh, if you are coming um, uh, home from work, if you travel by train. Um, the two things you need to bring uh, to the polling station are your stamp pass and any sort of ID. And as Gordon also already said, uh, it might it, it's allowed to have them expired by five years. So you don't mm. even have to bring a valid ID as long as you bring an ID. Mm. Um, you hand these then to one of the polling station officials who checks them. And if everything is in order, he or she will give you your ballot paper, which is probably the size of a bed sheet due to the enormous number of candidates. At the top of your ballot paper, you'll find the parties with their candidate listed underneath. Fill in uh, with uh, fill in the white circle in front of the candidate of your choice with the red pencil provided or the one you brought yourself. It has to be red, but you can bring your own mm. pencil. I, I'm going to bring the one I received uh, in last elections <laughs> because I intend to use it uh, until my death. Um, <laughs> then you leave the uh, cubicle, place your folded ballot folded ballot paper in the box and uh, you're done. Yeah. Paul, do you have a special box or a gold cigarette case to, for, for your red pencil that you keep not it in? Yet. No, you not should. yet. But Somebody I should, get you yeah. One. yeah. Or, or I need to have <laughs> a, a hanger or something, right? Yeah, so exactly. Maybe, do, do, you, do you know a, a hobbit or some, some, some sort of creature that can help me with mm, that? No, but I'll have an mm. ask around. Um, but okay. yeah, yeah, th- 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 we would like actually people to, um, to let us know if, you, if you're allowed to keep your pencil at your polling station, because different councils have different rules about whether you can take the pencil home with you right this year this year again or not i don't I, know i haven't heard it's anything last about time, it yeah, last year at the general elections um, they had rules because obviously they worried about people about they didn't want people to be contaminated by the pencils so some people uh, <laughs> insist on taking them back others said you can take them home with you it was it, it, yeah. it depended on which council you were voting in yeah, so, yeah, 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 and I was allowed to bring them. You were allowed uh, to take yours home, so yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, um, and then, yeah, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We just stress as well: you can vote for any candidate on the ballot paper. I mean, most people vote for the top yep. candidate, the last trekker, but you don't have to, and, and you might no. want to. And there is a, there is a very complicated um, system which actually means you can bump candidates up the list if they have enough personal votes. We won't get into yeah. that, but that's a reason. If you have a, if you have a favourite candidate, maybe a friend or you know or, or your sister-in-law or somebody, uh, then you can if you if you give them your vote, they've got more chance of moving up the list. So that even yeah. if that even if the, they wouldn't get a seat normally, they might still overtake somebody further up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, um, and technically you're you're voting on a person, but you know in yeah. you know in practice you're only voting for a a party it doesn't really matter who you're voting for so yeah uh, you have to circle uh, you have to fill in the circle but uh, yeah it, it doesn't matter which uh, person you vote for um, 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 all the votes go to the to the party yeah okay and then and also, also yeah, oh, sorry, I also sorry. have to I also have to uh, mention that the uh, uh, polling stations are open from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Um, that is on the Wednesday I'm not sure if that's also the case 
on Monday and Tuesday. There might be uh, different opening times and also some polling stations uh, might not yet be uh, opened on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, but uh, these are the times uh, you can vote um, uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, so the absolute deadline is 9 p.m. on Wednesday. That's when the polls yep. close. And then what happens? Yeah. After the last polling station closes, the votes uh, will be counted, naturally. Uh, the smaller municipalities are often very quick with counting the results. Uh, you have, for example, Schiermonnik Oog, who usually publish the results at five minutes after nine. <laughs> they are usually very quick. Mm. Um, but in the larger cities, it takes uh, 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 usually the whole night. But generally speaking, the results are known by noon the next morning. Mm. Um, and after that, the new local councils need to form a new coalition. So, yeah, prepare for 333 formatsies. Yeah, and uh, and often these coalitions, because you have all these local parties, uh, are of five, sometimes six parties yeah. altogether. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. yeah, if you thought that negotiations last year were complicated, just uh, wait to see when your local council officials get, get going. Yeah, yeah, it's funny that the uh, <laughs> that the national system also uh, yeah. is applied to to you know the the local levels. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, we're gonna need to form a coalition. Uh, that means you need a majority, and that yeah, in some cases, as you say, means that you have um, coalitions of five, six parties. So yeah, yeah it's uh, gonna be fun to see. Yes, indeed. How that will turn out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And we should say as well that there's a full rundown of um, of the elections on the Dutch News website, including a guide to all of the main cities in the Netherlands as well so uh, we, we, we selected nine cities where obviously large numbers of our readers and listeners to this podcast live in so uh, have a look on the website to see if your uh, if, if your hometown is covered coronavirus is over we've ditched all really? the rules face masks <laughs> I haven't except, noticed it yeah I <laughs> know you <laughs> But uh, you certainly hadn't. But officially, it is. We've, uh, we've, uh, ah. We're only wearing face masks on public transport now. There's no social distancing, and everyone's <coughs> everyone's gone back to the office. I think we, I think we should leave that cough in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should. I was just going to propose to have a a, a, a compilation of all my coughings this episode <laughs> yeah. for the end of the of, of the episode. But totally. uh, yeah, that might be too much work. Yeah. The only problem is, it seems somebody forgot to tell the virus. In the last week, the number of infections went up by 80%. 2.5% of the entire population tested positive in seven days, and the positive test rate hit 70%. The 7 in 10 people who go to the GGD for a test are indeed uh, infected with corona. But the picture was worst in the southern provinces of Brabant and Limburg, where you spent your weekend, Well, and that yeah. looks to be the effect of Carnival weekend. Um, as we no. said... No, there's no correlation whatsoever. <laughs> no, it's just um, a coincidence that, uh, say, in Midden and Vesperabant, uh, cases went up by 375% in the last yeah. week. In North Brabant, yeah. it was 372%. And the bronze medal goes to Limburg South, where cases went up by 354%. So... Even even, even on, in this regard, Limburg is the worst. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, Brabant's the worst. Yeah, no, I mean... It <laughs> Uh, uh, North Brabant has the golden medal. Oh, Limburg yeah, yeah. has the bronze yeah, Limbo, medal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Brabant eclipsed Limburg. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. The, the worst in badness. Yeah. If you've got a very long memory, you might remember this has happened before. Um, Carnival yeah. was also the super spreader event uh, right at the start of the pandemic two years ago, when uh, I think for the first week or so, the majority of all cases were in North Brabant. Uh, and if you look at the age groups as well, you see the cases doubled in the 15 to 30 population. That obviously you know, is uh, the, the, the majority of people who go out to Carnival. 
um, and certainly to spend time in enclosed spaces like bars and cafes. Now, in the last few days, cases have kept on rising, but uh, it does seem to be slowing down. Uh, I think yesterday went up by about 30%. So I guess we just have to hope now that this is a mini spike and the government has only fucked up. Uh, this is only a <laughs> very mild variant of government fuck up and the cases start dropping again in the spring. There was there is this nice, um, uh, yeah, uh, two um, maps going around uh, the internet this week that yeah. was... Um, the, the 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 map with the uh, infection rates in the Netherlands currently, with the entire South, you know, um, uh, bright red, yeah. uh, and uh, another map on the side uh, showing where the carnival was uh, celebrated in the Netherlands, and yes. that's not only the South. There are also some uh, places uh, in the North where carnival is celebrated. But you, th- th- there was almost a one-on-one correspondent between you know where carnival was celebrated, for example in. Twente and in uh, North, North Holland as well, uh, you saw spikes of, of infections there as well. So yeah, yeah it was um, it was almost a one-on-one correlation. Yeah, first, yeah. as expected. As, as, as totally expected. Yeah, there was the entirely predicted uh, consequences of, uh, of the actions. And Ernst Kappers, if you remember, said uh, if you go to Carnival, just to, just celebrate it in small groups, you know, and <laughs> don't get too drunk. Which he's obviously never been. It's probably a long time since Ernst Kappers actually went out in at a weekend. Yeah, yeah, or or, or or out to see the sun. Um, <laughs> also, some blood banks are reporting a spike in infections, right? Yes, uh, blood bank um, uh, operator Sunkin has been monitoring the level of infections in donated blood since the start of the pandemic. Spokesman Hans Zaya said the number of infected blood donors in the last two months was equivalent to the total for the whole of 2020 and 2021. So that's kind of how much more infectious uh, Omicron is. Uh, Zaya did also yeah. note that antibodies lasted longest in people who've been vaccinated and infected. So that's good news for you, Paul. Oh, yeah. well, so that's long live my antibodies. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a golden ticket, apparently, vaccination and infection. Uh, and he said that thanks to the high infection rate and the very mild Omicron variant um, that doesn't make you cough uh, to l- like an absolute uh, uh, bloodhound at all, we could be <laughs> optimistic. About, um, yeah, we can be more optimistic about the summer than in the last couple of years. Well, that's uh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. And given that uh, almost nobody is sick in the country, yeah. uh, there's also some talk of uh, relaxing the restrictions even further. Yes, yeah, so the outbreak management team uh, is meeting at the end of this week uh, today, and uh, there's been some leaked uh, reports already, as there always are. It looks as if the last remaining rules could be ditched uh, from March the 23rd, which is less than two weeks away, uh, according to sources uh, quoted by NOS on Thursday. Well, what rules are still in place anyway? Well, you're still supposed to wear a face mask on public transport and work from home half the week and if you're going to a large public event that's with uh, indoors with more than 500 people you should show a negative test before you go uh, hmm. The OMT says that despite the spike in the infections, the situation in hospitals is stable. Um, side note, uh, we, on Thursday we had 1,658 people with coronavirus in hospital, and that's the largest number since January the 4th. But, you know, stable. Uh, but intensive care numbers are much lower than they were at that point. Um, face masks will still be needed on board aircraft, but you will no longer have to take a test before you travel to the Netherlands if you've been vaccinated. So we can go, all go out and uh, start importing new variants again. Volt has to reinstate Nilfer Gundogan as an MP. The district court in Amsterdam has decided. Gundogan was suspended last month and then expelled after a string of allegations were made against her. None of the complaints have been made public and an internal inquiry into the claims has not yet been completed. 
The party said it had received 13 complaints about her, ranging from unwanted sexual advances to intimidation and abuse of power. Gunogan has denied all the allegations and said she had no idea what claims were being made against her. The judge noted that the party had taken action in the wake of the Voice of Holland scandal and said that it was understandable that the young and relatively inexperienced party leadership had been shocked when the first complaints were made. Nevertheless, the court had said that Volt had gone too far along the wrong road and had not acted in line with its statutes. There was insufficient legal and substantive grounds to suspend the MP, the court said. And in addition, the bureau carrying out the investigation had said in an interim report that it was too soon to draw any conclusions. An emotional Gunagan said after the verdict that the most important thing uh, to her was being able to clear her name. What other choice did I have than go to court, she told reporters. Volt leader Laurence Dossa and Gunagan have taken a mediator into arms in an effort to uh, come back to terms. Mm. I wonder how that will uh, work out. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder who's going to manage to come to a settlement first. Is it going to be Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin or Lawrence Dassen and <laughs> Lufa Gundogan? It's a, this is going to be some very awkward and difficult uh, talks ahead, I think. It must be, yeah. I mean, Gunogan, there were complaints about her and uh, basically Volt yeah, immediately uh, fell into a cramp and basically decided to suspend her immediately yeah. without any substantial uh, yeah. evidence or whatever. They didn't even inform her uh, about the reasons why she was suspended. So, yeah, w w she had to read that in the media uh, thanks to leaks uh, to the press. Um, and then before even the internal inquiry was finished, they already decided to... Uh, expel her and kick her out of the uh, uh, faction. So yeah, yeah. it's um, it, also the communication by Volt was terribly. And um, yeah, I hope they will learn a lot about this. And I hope for them that they will um, uh, manage to mitigate the damage a little bit. Because you know, uh, if there's one thing voters hate, that is uh, um, uh, internal fighting within the party, yeah. especially in a new one. So exactly as yeah. we've seen with Hank Cole. Um, yeah, but it's, it does seem that they kind of they panicked when they realized that they had a potential sexual harassment case on their hands but then in yeah. the course of panicking they sort of overreacted they created a whole new set of problems with themselves and of course the sexual harassment investigation is still is still ongoing yeah so this will definitely have a um, further developments i'm sure yeah and the trader cam has also decided on uh, new rules for debate yeah, MPs have agreed to make intimidation and threats against fellow parliamentarians a formal reason to stop the perpetrator from taking part in debates. Um, that sounds like a no-brainer, but mm. uh, okay, it wasn't officially a rule, but now uh, it will become one. The new rules were put forward by parliamentary chairwoman Vera Bergkamp, who was uh, you know, heavily criticized earlier this year for failing to tackle MPs who threatened or insulted others during debates. Uh, during Wednesday's debate on the new rules, MPs from across the political spectrum urged Bergkamp to intervene more often, as long as freedom of speech remains paramount. Freedom of speech has nothing to do with insulting people, Bergkamp said. It is insults and spreading manipulated videos about certain MPs on social media, as some parties do, which is smothering freedom of speech. MPs have said to me privately that there are some things they no longer dare to say. 
The far-right PVV didn't take part in the discussion about the new rules or the debate. Its leader Geert Wilders was criticized for the language he used against two Muslim MPs earlier this year. And also the far-right Forum for Democracy has also come under fire after its MPs threatened others with tribunals. And this was sort of the uh, direct reason why uh, this debate was held, because these things were you know, uh, running out of hand, uh, to use an understatement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a difficult one because freedom of speech is extremely important, obviously, and especially within the parliamentary debating chamber that you should be allowed to say what you think and uh, and sometimes use forceful language. But if it's descended to the point where it is just literally just playground insults and no one's actually completely devoid of insight, I think is the point here, that uh, people yeah. are just hurling the most grievous possible insults at each other and not actually making any kind of substantive point. And it was cheapening the debate so much that Parliament was in danger of becoming an irrelevance. There's a Dutch expression uh, in Pulse of Parliament, which is uh, supposed to be sort of a rowdy and uh, uncontrollable Parliament, but sort of the Dutch Parliament, I think it was, if they carried on and this road they were going to, have to update that phrase and call it the Netherlands parliament <laughs> yeah yeah to be honest we, we have to blame only two parties i think yeah. here um for um uh, spoiling you know for lowering the tone yeah yeah for lowering the tone and uh, spoiling the order and also the dignity of the of the parliamentary um uh, debating chamber and that is of course a form for democracy and m- maybe to a lesser extent but uh the, the pvv i think yeah but you know uh, collectively they are 20% of the votes or something so yeah that is a substantial part if you take that into account you cannot say oh it's only this very tiny group of people that are spoiling things and uh, ruining things yeah. it is quite substantial numbers so yeah it's um, it was it was about time that the Tweede Kamer uh, stepped in and established some new rules the question is will this be enough uh, I fear that it will not be no. and that uh, yeah we're gonna see more examples of parliamentarians behaving uh, terribly uh, in the future yeah uh, still but at least they uh, they spoke out against it uh, by majority and yeah, uh, yeah that's uh, probably the only thing you can do indeed so we will yes we will, i think we'll be back here as you say having this uh, this, this conversation again several times in the months to come Four Dutch clubs were in action in the UEFA Conference League on Thursday in what proved to be an eventful evening. Feyenoord came back from 2-1 down just after half-time to win 5-2 at Partizan Belgrade and only a worse disaster than the Russian economy will stop them reaching the quarterfinals. Vitesse Arnhem faced a tough trip to Italy after losing 1-0 at home to AS Roma, managed by Jose Mourinho. Um, they're also facing a bit of a tough and uncertain future because they're owned by a Russian, Valeri Oif, oh. which has put a bit of a spanner in the works. Uh, he's yeah. very close to the Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich, who of course has been sanctioned in the UK, and Chelsea now uh, have been frozen as an asset, so they can't sell tickets for their matches. I heard Chelsea uh, is only allowed to sell food and, and drinks. Yeah. But they aren't even allowed to to sell tickets they can't anymore. Sell tickets so, to their matches, no, no. So what they might do, if I was Chelsea, is sell beer for what is it, fifty euros or something, yeah. and then use that <laughs> as a sort of ticket. You can you can only enter the stadium yeah. uh, if you buy a beer for fifty euros. Yeah, yeah that's, or a cola. Yeah. Maybe they should contact um, uh, you, uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a minister that is uh, responsible for uh, uh, getting rid of all these. Uh, uh, financial constructions but yeah they need to get on the phone to the Dutch Belastingdienst because I'm exactly, sure they can come yeah. up with a very re- attractive deal to relocate Chelsea and that's what's going to happen <laughs> is it Chelsea can next, uh, play their matches in like um, you know Alphen und Rhein or something from next <laughs> uh, next year or is it through a letterbox construction <laughs> 
Um, yeah, for Larry Oif, he bankrolls the club through a letterbox firm, uh, but if he pulls out, he could leave behind debts of 132 million, which would uh, leave Vitesse with a real headache in the context of the fair play rules that now apply to football finances. Is Vitesse really worth 132 million? No, it's not. Euros? That's a problem. Oh. But that's what that's the size of the debt that's attached to the club. And the big question is because he uses this obscure letterbox firm, no one's quite sure whether he's personally liable or the club's liable. Oh, wow. So, yeah, what a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the pitch, uh, Azad Alkmaar had a bitterly cold experience in the Arctic Circle. They uh, were drawing 1-0 with Norwegian side Bodo Glimt, uh, but then they conceded a penalty in the last minute, so they lost 2-1. But the real drama was in Eindhoven, where PSV came back from 3-1 and 4-3 down, and missed a penalty against FC Copenhagen. Final score, 4-4. And uh, the return legs are next week, along with Ajax's second leg match at Benfica in the Champions League. When you said Azad had a bitterly cold experience in the Arctic Circle. <laughs> I thought they were stranded on Nova Zembla or something. Oh God. But, uh, yeah. yeah, something like that. Certainly not, yeah. This is the point in the podcast where we take a moment to say thank you to our loyal patrons who keep us going for reasons beyond our comprehension, despite <laughs> the soaring price of bread and petrol and the impending threat of nuclear annihilation. All our new patrons get a shutout to express our gratitude and the chance to ask us a question, or you can just ask us a question anyway and feel guilty about your cheapskate approach to life. This week we welcome one new patron, Zet. So thank you very much indeed, Zet, for your support. And we have one new question from a long-standing patron, Dan. Dan's question, I think, is a bit of a spin-off from the discussion we had uh, two weeks ago about the best place to visit in Drenthe. Um, he asks, for the benefit of someone who lives overseas and hasn't been to your country, what about Limburg makes it so undesirable? <laughs> Where to start <laughs> with this? Limburg is, to start with, Limburg is not an undesirable place, just like Drenthe is. But, you know, sometimes we need a place to, you know, ventilate our frustrations mm. onto. And Limburg is a very easy target for that. And why is that? I think Limburg is one of the most isolated provinces mm. uh, in, in, in several ways. Geographical, for example, it is this penis-shaped um, <laughs> appendix hanging on the Netherlands. Yeah. It is uh, squashed between Belgium and Germany, mm. and it has therefore more to do with these countries than with the Netherlands. Uh, if you hear two people from Limburg speaking, their dialect is, is a mix between you know Belgian and German and Dutch. It is incomprehensible for people from, from the rest of the country. Mm. Also, if you travel there, you will notice that the landscape is completely different. It is completely different than the rest of the country. They yeah. have hills, Awful for things. example. Yeah. 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 Hills. <laughs> what, what, what are those? Yeah, exactly. Dutch people are allergic to hills. So, yeah, exactly, Limburg can't yeah. possibly be in the Netherlands. Yeah. No. So, it is a place that, you know, it's, it's a little bit... Yeah, isolated, I would guess, and that's why it's so easy to to pick on. But you, we can always choose another different place. Uh, Drenthe, for example, Flevoland is also. I was going to say Flevoland. Yeah, if, if we're going to hit yeah. them anywhere, I, I would nominate Flevoland. Yeah. Yeah, Flevoland is a better choice, yeah. uh, probably. Brabant. People always complain about Brabant as well as a sort of. Um, it's a kind of sort of like um, the drug factory of Europe. You mean it's like a exactly. <laughs> um, we we joke about it as a sort of undeveloped place. It's, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm from Brabant, but I I can stand the jokes. Yeah. Um, for some reason, people never joke about Utrecht. Why is that? I don't know. Yeah. 
I think people just forget about it a lot of the time. Mm, that might be the case, yeah. Groningen, everyone is also uh, positive about Groningen. Yeah, people are, people are very sympathetic Groningen, I think, because they've had a hard time with the earthquakes. So That might be Groningen. it, yeah. Yeah, mm, but Groningen mm, does mm. also have quite an incomprehensible dialect as well. So, so That's true, yeah, yeah. Many places have incomprehensible dialects, yeah. but I think especially uh, espe- Limburg is also different because of the... We always describe it as a sort of... It sounds like singing. It's very... has a very m- melodious... Is that a word? I melodious. Don't know. Yeah, which again is something that only Dutch people could think of as a negative uh, characteristic. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> of an accent. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a a province that has a lot of contrast compared to uh, the rest of the country. Yeah, it kind of stands out. Yeah, it, 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 it yeah. also describes as a remote, remote or yeah, detached peninsula. But then when you actually when you look at pan out and see the rest of the map, you see it's actually integrated into quite a big urbanized region that's um, as yeah. I, I was talking to people in Maastricht in the context of local elections they say look we're like I say we're close to Belgium and Germany and in Germany I've placed like Aachen in Belgium you've got Liège it's actually sort of a region of about 4 million people it's not disconnected yeah. at all It's but it's only disconnected in the minds of uh, people of who live Dutch. in the rest of the Netherlands yeah, yeah. So, it might be more international than The Hague for example yeah, yeah in that regard and also uh, now come to think of it uh, when, when you're talking about the election uh, also uh, electorally, it is a province that stands out because uh, the PVV, the PVV's electoral base, is located in Limburg. Yeah. Uh, Geert Wilders comes from Limburg, so in a way, the voters also feel they are detached from the rest of the country and they vote for these anti-establishment parties. So yeah, it, also in that regard, uh, you can can uh, describe Limburg as sort of isolated. But you see a support from voters in in many of the border regions across the country for the PVV. So it's not something that uh, Limburg stands alone in, but it is uh, noteworthy, I think. If you'd like to join our ranks of patrons and do your bit for the war on misinformation and the war on Limburg, you can sign up <laughs> online at www.patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash dutchnewsnl. The war in Ukraine could spark a recession as severe as the crisis of the 1970s, the Employers Association Fair No NCV warned this week. The government's macroeconomic think tank, CPB, said inflation is likely to stay above 5% this year and Russia's invasion could push prices even higher as the cost of fuel goes up. The employer's body said every energy crisis in history has led to a recession and it was monitoring the effect on industry with concern. Director Ingrid Tyson said it's important to ensure this situation does not result in more economic problems in addition to the human suffering and concerns about Europe's security. We'll talk a lot about the human suffering and the security implications uh, later in the, when we interview Andre de Geller, but we, we consciously decided to just focus on the effect in the Netherlands in this podcast because there's so much news about the yeah. general progress of the war elsewhere. This week, the government's also said it will take steps to alleviate an expected drop in spending power of 2.7% this year, mostly because of those high energy prices. On Thursday, NOS reported that the cabinet had drawn up a 2.3 billion support package to help people with their living costs. The 200 euro energy subsidy for low earners could be raised to 800. VAT on gas and electricity will be cut from 21% to the lower rate of 9%. And there are also plans to help people with the cost of re-insulating their homes especially people obviously on low incomes who tend to live in less well-insulated houses. But the measures won't take effect until the 1st of July. Yeah, so um, the sense of urgency is, uh, yeah. Absent. (laughs) Absent, yeah. (laughs) 
So, what what's the latest on refugees? Because there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees uh, pouring into Europe. Um, what's the Netherlands doing about that? There are. Uh, more than 2 million people have fled Ukraine now uh, since uh, Russia launched its invasion two weeks ago, uh, according to the United Nations Refugee Agency. Uh, 2 million have also left the city of Kiev as the Russian army closes in on the capital. Some of those people have stayed in Ukraine. Uh, around 2,500 refugees have arrived in the Netherlands, and Junior Migration Minister Erik van der Burg has told the network of safety councils to make space for 50,000. But he's also said there's no maximum to the number of people who can come. We're not going to tell the 50,000 and first person, sorry, no more. Well, you might not be, but I think the IND's computers uh, will need to be <laughs> double-checked for that. Ukrainians are allowed to stay in the Netherlands for 90 days under the terms of the accession treaty with the EU. Remember the accession oh, treaty I'm... and how we had that big referendum about it? Yeah, Maybe we ironic, isn't that. it? Yeah. yeah, no, no, please don't. No, uh, yeah, it's a horrible national embarrassment. Anyway, Amsterdam has located a thousand hotel beds for refugees and thousands of others have been accommodated in people's homes through schemes such as Take Care B&B and Share My Home. We'll link to those organizations in our liner notes. So I guess the big question is, uh, is the Netherlands going to ban Russian gas or not? Uh, no, oh. basically. Mark Ritter said the uh, consequences of a European ban would just be enormous uh, because countries like the Netherlands are hugely dependent on imported Russian gas. Around 15% of our gas supply comes from uh, from Russia um, and uh, Putin uh, threatened to cut off the gas supply if Europe went ahead with an energy ban, as the Americans have done. And uh, people in the industry speculated that could double the price of oil and given that hmm. we're already paying sort of record amounts for uh, gas, electricity and petrol, that would be a, a pretty heavy shock. Um, but Rutter did say the West had shown the need to find new supplies of energy, which some people have been saying we've, uh, we should have done like 15 years ago, but anyway, yeah. uh, so that's not vulnerable to Russia's pipeline politics. The European Union unveiled plans this week to reduce its reliance on Russian gas by two-thirds this year, largely by importing instead from those flourishing democracies of uh, Norway, Fair enough. Algeria and uh, Azerbaijan. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so basically swapping one dictator for, for another, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think this has reinforced my argument that we should just let the Norwegians invade. Sorry, what? <laughs> this has reinforced my argument we should let the Norwegians take over. I, I thought we talked about this two weeks ago. Is it, we, we're looking for a dictator to, 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 to relieve us. Oh, that's us. right. And we, to, we suggest the Norwegians. Yeah. That's right. But, <laughs> but, but putting this treacherous uh, <laughs> comment aside, do you know what the national train company of Norway is called? Probably NSB or something. Exactly. So, <laughs> it might be a coincidence. Maybe. Yeah. But I personally welcome our NSB government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will definitely not cut this out, Gordon. When the Russian invasion of Ukraine began two weeks ago, Andrei Dechelo was on his way from Groningen to his hometown of Kharkiv. He found himself in the town just as the first bombs started to fall, and he's now there for, for an indefinite amount of time. And we're very uh, pleased to say he's uh, made time to speak to us on the Dutch News podcast uh, this, this, uh, this week. Andre, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gordon. Thanks for having me. You spoke to us at Dutch News uh, just as you were actually traveling from Groningen uh, away to, uh, off to Kharkiv. Can you maybe just uh, fill people in very quickly on the backstory of why you were traveling? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, it's a, it's a really a, a story of uh, good timings and bad timings. But uh, just a few days before the invasion started, uh, the news uh, were getting. 
uh, quite grim already from Ukraine. And uh, so my wife and I we decided that I should uh, go to Ukraine, to our hometown of Kharkiv in the northeast and uh, uh, move uh, my mother uh, from there to a safer part of Ukraine, so somewhere, somewhere in the west. So, uh, that, so that was the, the whole idea and uh, I arrived there just a few days before uh, Russia uh, started the war and uh, I managed to move my mother out of the town uh, even before uh, the bomb started falling. Uh, however, the day after that I realized that uh, w while we were leaving in a hurry uh, we forgot an important document in uh, oh. Kharkiv and so I had to go back there uh, by train to retrieve that document from my mom's house and um, and that was at the time uh, when uh, when the war actually started. So on the morning of the 24th of February, I uh, I was on a train uh, going to Kharkiv, and at around uh, six o'clock in the morning, uh, I woke up uh, to my fellow passengers talking about uh, the uh, the war and that there are already attacks uh, in uh, the in the city we were going to. So that was uh, that was the start of it for me, and uh, I came to Kharkiv that day, retrieved that document, and uh, got on a train back. And since the 25th, uh, since the second day of the war, I am uh, in a, a western uh, city of Khmelnytsky, which is nice. uh, relatively safe. So I'm working here mostly as a TV journalist right now. Okay, so you you're in. Um Kharkiv on the morning that uh, the, the invasion began. How how quickly did the mood change? Because I think you said that uh, when you first got there, everything seemed quite calm and peaceful. It was it was really crazy. Like the uh, the change of mood was uh, also seen on the train itself. So like around five six a.m., uh, we had the first report. Uh, that uh, the shelling started in Kharkiv, but also in Sumy, uh, which we were also passing by on that train. And honestly, like by the minute, I think people started to get more and more worried. They started calling uh, their relatives, their friends, started to adjust their plans so that they could either get out of the train earlier and go back to the west of the country, or they would still go in pick up their friends and families and again leave as quickly as possible. So, so that, was, that was the mood on the train and uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, decided to leave the train uh, before, uh, before it arrived uh, to Kharkiv. And so the, f the last couple of hours we were uh, in the train, uh, our, our carriage was half empty. Maybe there were like maybe seven to ten people and we were all just like walking around and trying to uh, calm down a little bit and talk to each other uh, on uh, whether anybody has uh, heard anything, any news uh, has been around of uh, what's going on in Kharkiv. In the city itself, it was, it was a, bit of sur a bit surreal. Uh, so I still managed to get a taxi uh, to go to uh, the place where uh, my mother lived and uh, I think the uh, transport was mostly working, metro was still uh, working just normally in, that c in the city and people were people just didn't understand what was going on and whether it was going to last long or not and surprisingly there were no long there was no crowd at the train station when i was leaving there was some crowd but uh, it was just like a one trains worth uh, uh, of people 
So not too many people decided right away that uh, they needed to leave. That, of mm. course, changed over the next few days after that, when uh, uh, the photos were uh, coming from Kharkiv, from Kiev, that people just could not fit into the evacuation trains uh, that uh, were uh, formed by uh, Ukrazaliznitsa, the Ukrainian railway company. But on that first day, uh, there was no understanding of how severe uh, things could get. Yes, and how quickly as well, I suppose. And so you were able to get out with your mother uh, relatively easily when, when you did. It must have been a huge relief for you that you managed to get away and especially get her away. Yeah, that was uh, that was the uh, good timing part of that story. Mm. The bad timing, of course, was the second time I went to Kharkiv. But the good yeah. timing was indeed that I managed to uh, get there before everything started and uh, that uh, uh, my mother is now, uh, is now safe and uh, I am sure that... If uh, things get worse, I will be able to also get her to and uh, over the border. Yeah. And when you said that uh, people were talking about what was happening in the news, how easy was it to get, get information about exactly what was going on, you know, on the front line, as it were? And uh, where do you get your information from, mainly? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a big problem to understand what was going on, just because... Uh, next to uh, the mainstream uh, media, just the normal media outlets in Ukraine, you have uh, uh, a very popular uh, kind of uh, information channel, which is Telegram, uh, the messenger. So mm -hmm. uh, just to, to explain it really quickly, a lot of people are using Telegram uh, the way uh, in the West we would use Twitter. Uh, there right. are a lot of uh, Telegram channels, so-called, which are basically uh, curated, um, yeah, curated channels in which uh, only a few people can post. So it is just a very up-to-the-minute uh, media outlet which uh, uh, sends information in very short bursts. At the same time, this information is being f uh, fed uh, into those channels by actual people. So uh, it's just uh, it's just that there are a few people who curate that channel, but at the same time, most of the information comes from other locals, uh, basically. And so, mm. and so that morning on the 24th, uh, the, all those channels were full of the first videos of, uh, of the bombings, and a lot of people were just uh, reporting what they heard, what they saw. Uh, in different parts of the city, so it was actually quite obvious uh, which parts of the city were being attacked and uh, where uh, where the the fighting was uh, still uh, still going on at any point. There were, of course, sometimes some sort of misinformation, disinformation uh, things coming mostly, I think, from people who heard something from someone and decided to report it. But at the mm. same time, it was uh, the, the, there was enough information. It was not an information vacuum that you would expect maybe at, at a different time at the beginning of a war. Yeah, sure. Um, and you've been moving around a lot and driving about quite a bit since you've been there. What have you seen and what have you heard um, in the course of being just driving around Ukraine? So I can't say I've been driving around Ukraine. Ukraine is a very big country, so right, okay. I've uh, so yeah I've uh, had to. So I moved around uh, the city of Khmelnytsky, where I am right now in the west, uh, just as part of my uh, work here. I also just took a drive to the city of Lviv, that's to the west uh, from Khmelnytsky, basically mm. closer to the border with Poland. So I went uh, there and back. So. 
and uh, the west of the country is uh, right now relatively safe and uh, but of course uh, there are a lot of people internally displaced people who are arriving to all the cities in the west some of them arrive for a couple of days and then they leave uh, for the border to uh, move to another country uh, some of them decide to stay and wait over here so Khmelnytsky where I am uh, we don't have that many internally displaced people arriving although we have very like about 400,000 people actually came here but I think most of them left while in Lviv uh, Lviv has become I think this very important hub uh, for these people right now. Uh, so it's uh, from one hand is the hub for people who move to move west. On the other hand, it's a hub for all the humanitarian aid that comes uh, from other countries and has to be distributed. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in Lviv are saying that the strain on the city is getting uh, very, uh, very difficult uh, to uh, to contain. So that's uh, that's one thing. But at the same time, on the roads, uh, of course, you see the checkpoints, you, uh, which were not there before that. Of yeah. course, you see uh, more soldiers uh, with, uh, uh, with, with the guns. Uh, you see more police. You see more patrols. But other than that, I can't say the roads are choke full at this moment. And I can't say uh, that, uh, uh, it, that it's like... Yeah, that, that, that there, that is a, yeah. So basically, I can't say that a lot, a lot has changed uh, for uh, for these cities uh, if you just look at them uh, from the outside. Okay. Yeah. And uh, when you move, when you travel, when you left Konya, were you expecting to be back in the Netherlands in a few days? Yeah. And what's the situation now? Yeah, that's yeah, that's indeed the case. So I, when I was uh, uh, flying uh, from uh, uh, from the Netherlands to Ukraine, I thought my first thought that was that we are definitely overreacting. Mm. Nothing is going to happen. All all that's gonna happen now is that I'm going to lose uh, some time uh, driving around Ukraine, and then uh, no war will start, and in a couple of weeks I will be I will be back. So that's uh, definitely not the case. So right now. And being a Ukrainian citizen, uh, I would not uh, be allowed to leave the country due to the mobilization rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so for now, uh, since we are uh, quite safe, we are just going to stay here uh, in Khmelnytsky for the time being. And I will just uh, continue working with a TV station uh, for which I uh, file some uh, live reports uh, on the situation here in Ukraine. And I think this will be the case uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I mean, what's it like for you? I mean, you 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 didn't have any plans, obviously. To, to your plans are to go back to Konya. Now suddenly you've got to make plans, kind of on the spot, for what you yeah. do day to day. I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it was a bit. It it was really hard to hard to deal with at the beginning because yeah, I expected that I would see my wife and my child uh, really quickly. I will be back in Groningen, and uh, I had all sorts of uh, different plans. But at the same time, I'm kind of uh, used to, to traveling uh, for for my normal work uh, with uh, a technology journalism. I would travel uh, around Europe a lot, so it's sort of like if you if you sort of distance yourself uh, from the situation on the ground from what is actually happening sometimes you can feel that yeah it's just a sort of an extended extended business trip uh, which i will get back from very soon but yeah when you when you think about it the situation could last uh, could last much longer and um, 
yeah, but for now, uh, for now, I'm uh, yeah, I'm doing quite okay, and I have to say that most of the country is probably having it worse uh, than we do than we are uh, here uh, in the in the West. Yeah, and how do people talk about it? So day to day, people that you meet with, and with obviously the, 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 with the uh, the other parts of the country that are under attack, and also the prospect that you might be called on to fight at any time. This this is an incredible time, really, for uh, for Ukraine. I have to say. So just to put it in context, uh, for for many people, especially people who have been working as uh, uh, volunteers uh, for the army. Uh, the war started eight years ago uh, when uh, Russia uh, occupied parts of Donetsk and Luhansk regions in the west and annexed Crimea. So a lot of people uh, have been uh, working as volunteers uh, with the army, uh, getting uh, just trying to fulfill uh, the needs of the army and uh, provide uh, whatever was necessary for the internally displaced people coming from the eastern regions. So for these people, they are just continuing uh, their work in a much of course there is much more uh, much more hurry it's much it's much more urgent right now for them but they at least uh, know what they are doing and around them uh, you can see the rest of the people who can uh, do things who can work who can who can be volunteers who can join territorial defense forces so around around them uh, they just unite uh, and the, this is a, this is this is an incredible time uh, for the Ukrainian people who unite as uh, they never they never did before since the uh, Soviet Union fell. So this is a very important time for the country, and of course, a, a huge toll has been paid for it already in terms of uh, human lives, in terms of damage that uh, uh, the cities have taken. But at the same time, it feels like. Ukrainian people are now united more than they ever they ever have been since uh, Ukraine became an independent country in 1999 1991 sure and how are your uh, your wife and your family um, in the Netherlands uh, managing with it all well, I mean, I mean, of course, uh, of course, it's hard. It's hard for every uh, person uh, who was born in Ukraine, uh, like we are. So, of course, for my family, it's uh, it's hard to know that. I am here uh, in the in the country that's at war. It's very hard for them to know that our hometown is uh, uh, being uh, shelled, uh, because this is where I'm from. This is where my wife is from, uh, where um, our uh, parents uh, lived. So, it, it it is incredibly hard, of course, for everyone, uh, including including my family in Groningen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you able to still are you able to still talk to them every day and uh, yeah, and uh, see them and yeah. of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing about it is the communications. It turns out in Ukraine, uh, the infrastructure is very resilient. So we haven't had any issues over here, but also in in most parts of the country, country, excluding I think Mariupol, which is which has been blocked uh, from all the communications for a while now. In, in most of the country, we have uh, cell coverage, uh, we have uh, broadband internet access, uh, we have some, some transportation going on in the cities that are not being bombed. So, it's, uh, so, so this part of the infrastructure is actually very resilient. And so, yeah, of course, uh, I, I talk to my family every day. We, we have uh, uh, video calls uh, all together so I can, see, uh, I can see my wife, I can see my child. So that's, uh, that, that, that's uh, not been a problem so far. Good, good. And do you have any sense of how long this might last, when it might end? Or, do you just, or are you just living from day to day at the moment? 
Honestly, this sense depends. Uh, it changes every every day, if not every hour. So it's sort of like you can you can ask me in the morning, and I will send, uh, say one thing, and you can ask me in the evening, and I will say something totally different. Sometimes it feels like uh, it can be this can be over uh, within uh, within a week or two. Uh, sometimes you read some other analysis, read some other news reports, and you realize that yeah, this could actually be a very long uh, war that would last uh, months so it's really it's really very hard to predict so i uh, i really try to just leave uh, uh, day to day and um, day by day and uh, week by week uh, without uh, forecasting too much in the future because whatever we can forecast right now would be based on uh, incomplete information and most probably would be wrong anyway yeah do, do you manage to switch off do you do you manage to get moments when you just are able to just not think about what's going on in the country and just uh, uh, d d d d d just live for the moment. Not not like that, no. But yeah. uh, the 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 time when I sort of switch off is actually when I report. Uh, when I basically when I take off my uh, hat of a Ukrainian uh, citizen uh, who who's uh, uh, who's lived for 22 years in this country and. Uh, I put my journalist hat on, just thinking about what's going on from a bit of a distance. So this, I think, is the only is the only time when I can feel sort of switched off, just like looking at it from the distance and not from the inside. Yeah, sure. And I mean, we obviously are following very closely what's going on from uh, the Netherlands, from other other countries in Western Europe and beyond. But we often you can feel quite sort of powerless when you see what's you know the, the magnitude of what's happening. What, what what's the best thing that we can do? Um, to help people in Ukraine. Yeah, that's the case. Uh, I mean, there, there is, there is not, there isn't much that can be done. And honestly, it's, there, there isn't much that can be done by anyone who is not fighting the front lines. I feel quite powerless myself as well. So right now, I think the main plea that the Ukrainian people and the government have been making to the West is uh, uh, to, to close the sky over the country, which would mean that NATO uh, would have to uh, send uh, fighter jets uh, to patrol the skies over Ukraine so that to make sure uh, that uh, no more cities get uh, bombed, uh, no more damage is uh, done. However, it is not an easy decision to make uh, for the NATO and for the West because this would basically uh, mean uh, that this could, this could trigger a response from Russia and the, uh, the West is really hesitant because the response could be the nuclear option. So, but for Ukraine, a lot of people are hoping that this could still happen because this would mean a very decisive change in what's happening. On the on the other hand, uh, what's already being done, I think, by a lot of countries, a lot of people in the West, and for which everyone is quite grateful, is uh, uh, that all European countries are taking uh, in uh, the displaced people uh, from Ukraine, people who uh, have to uh, flee the war. And uh, I have mostly heard very uh, positive things about how uh, how welcoming how hospitable uh, are people all across uh, europe uh, starting from the neighboring countries uh, like poland and slovakia and hungary and romania and moldova and then all the way to uh, germany and netherlands uh, and uh, southern europe so i guess this uh, this is this is the most of it so for for just for for, for the people in the west right now just it's, it's just uh, that's enough to just be kind to people who arrive from Ukraine. And for the politicians, I do really hope that uh, we get some sort of progress in uh, uh, in this uh, fighter jet situation. Great. Okay. Um, 
Oh, thanks very much, uh, Andy. That was uh, that was great. And um, yeah, I, I hope uh, you stay safe. And um, yeah, that uh, yeah that uh, that that uh, yeah, that uh, yeah, the war ends uh, sooner rather than later, and that you can get back to see your family again in Kronian. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. All the best. That's uh, all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us now on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. Well, not 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 free exactly, right? So yeah, mm, well, yeah. not really. Well, the, the no, shout out is really. free. Yeah, the shout out is free. That's yeah, right. But yeah. you first have to. Uh, it's a bit like so you get your free ticket to Chelsea when you buy a fifty euro beer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my thanks to Gordon Derek and Andre uh, Delaher. I'm Paul Peters, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.